I'm Kathy Jones. And I'm Lizanne Saunders. And this is On Investing, a new original podcast from Charles Schwab. Each week, we're going to bring you our analysis of what's happening in the markets and how it might affect your investments. But before we get to that, I think we should talk a little bit about why we're doing this and what you can expect if you follow the show and listen regularly. Right, Lizanne? Absolutely. One of the things my daughter often says to me is, Mom, get to the point. So I guess that's what we're going to do here is what's the point of this? And and you and I have both done just a ton of media over uh, over the many years we've been in this business, but we've always wanted to do a podcast, something you can listen to while you're commuting or running. I don't run. So for me, it's walking, walking the dog, and maybe just as important, something you can go back and listen to later. It's not live and it's not TV. And one thing I have found that's so great about podcasts is you can go back and listen to it whenever that fits in your schedule. And the idea with this podcast is that we'll each give our perspectives on the markets, our areas of expertise. We'll bring in some other people from within Schwab, outside Schwab, to share their analysis and stories as well. And if you don't know us, I figure we should introduce each other. Uh, So let me go first and introduce you. Uh, Kathy. So Kathy is Schwab's chief fixed income strategist. And what that means is she analyzes the bond market. She and her team look at everything from short-term interest rates to long-term municipal bonds to junk bonds. She also provides fixed income education for investors at Schwab. Kathy has been an analyst of global credit markets throughout her career, working with both institutional and retail clients. Now, Kathy joined Schwab in 2011. She's heard me say this. She's heard the chuckles in response, but I I don't say it in jest. That was a great year for me when we brought Kathy on because that was when I uh, was able to stop pretending like I was an expert in the fixed income uh, market. So um, Kathy uh, was a fixed income strategist with Morgan Stanley Smith Barney. Boy, that's an old name or at least part of it, where she specialized in global macro strategy covering both domestic and international bonds as well as foreign exchange. She has also been a consultant in alternative investments and was executive vice president of the Debt Capital Markets Division at Prudential Securities. Kathy received her bachelor's degree in English literature with honors from Northwestern University and her master's of business administration in finance, also from Northwestern. I'm sure you've seen Kathy on CNBC, Bloomberg, CNN, other places. And interestingly, she's also uh, active, we both are, in Schwab's Women's Investing Network and our mentoring uh, programs. So over to you, Kathy. Well, thanks, Lizanne. Thanks for all that. And uh, yes, you're right. There's a couple of old names in there that uh, aren't around so much anymore. Um, Now it's my turn to introduce you. Um, Lizanne Saunders is Schwab's chief investment strategist. So she's responsible for a lot of our market and economic analysis and investor education, all focused on the individual investor. Lizanne is regularly quoted in financial publications, including the Wall Street Journal, the New York Times, Barron's, and Financial Times. And she appears as a regular guest on CNBC, Bloomberg, CNN, CBS News, among others. Barron's has named her to its 100 most influential women in finance every year since the list's inception. An investment advisor has included her on the IA25, its list of the 25 most important people in and around the financial advisory profession. Lizanne also has been named to Forbes 50 over 50, although I don't believe she she is over 50. 
well over 50. <laughs> well, you know, look, uh, in 1999, uh, Lizanne joined U.S. Trust, which was acquired by Schwab in 2000 as a managing director and member of its investment policy committee. Previously, uh, Lizanne was managing director and senior portfolio manager at Avatar Associates, an original division of the Zweig Avatar Group. She held an MBA in finance from the Gabelli School of Business at Fordham University and a BA in economics and political science from the University of Delaware. She's also vice chair of the board of trustees for Nantucket's Boys and Girls Club, which follows 12 years on the board of Make-A-Wish Foundation. Okay, so that's who we are. Let's talk a little bit about our own philosophies and what matters to us when we're looking at the markets. Lizanne, you've worked in this business for quite a while. But how has your approach evolved over time? What's your overall approach to looking at the markets and the economy? Sure. And, and yeah, it, it is quite a while. And I, I don't shy away from years in terms of age or experience. It's uh, 37 years for me. I think you have me beat by uh, a couple of, of years. But yeah, as you mentioned in the intro, Kathy, I, uh, I started in this business in the mid-1980s working for the late great Marty Zweig. I was on the institutional side of that combined organization where Marty was running the mutual fund side and a hedge fund, and he had what was the most popular investment newsletter at the time. And I, I learned really a, a lot uh, about the markets uh, from Marty. He was, I guess, known as a market timer, but it was a very disciplined process. He wasn't um, trying to bombastically forecast tops and bottoms, but take a really disciplined approach looking at monetary liquidity and investor liquidity, which to some degree are kind of fancy terms for Fed policy and uh, investor behavior and sentiment. So so my learnings were sort of steeped in that analysis and very much tied to things that he became well known for uh, for believing in and saying, probably the most famous is don't fight the Fed. A lot of people don't realize that, that that was his sort of coined phrase and and everybody uses it now, but there's a lot of, of truth to that. And I'm sure we're going to spend plenty of time on this podcast talking about uh, the Fed and implications for uh, markets. Now, Lizanne, I know that you have some other quotes that you keep handy, things that you probably have in your 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 brain right now you've memorized that are important to you and your philosophy could you could you share some of those with us sure i'll never forget the first book that that marty gave me to read about the market and it's one i recommend all the time to people it's a it's a short book it's a paperback it's it's an easy and fun read and it's called reminiscences of a stock operator by edwin lefevre and I, I I have this quote written down from the the book, which I always have in front of me because I think it really frames the the environment and what is truly important in terms of of how markets behave and in turn how investors behave. And the the quote from the book is the the sucker has always tried to get something for nothing, and the appeal in all booms is always frankly to the gambling instinct aroused by cupidity and spurred by a pervasive prosperity. People who look for easy money invariably pay for the privilege of proving conclusively that it cannot be found on this sordid earth. And it, it, it really gets to the heart of the emotional side of investing. And it's one of the, 
the things that I spend a lot of time focusing on when I write and talk to our investors is about the differential between financial risk tolerance and emotional risk tolerance and how that can sort of trip up uh, investors. Another um, quote that I that I have on this you know dog-eared piece of paper that I think about a lot is from the uh, still around in his 90s, Burton Molecule. And it's it's not hard to make money in the market. What is hard is to avoid the alluring temptation to throw your money away on short, get-rich, speculative binges. It's an obvious lesson, but one frequently ignored. And the one that, Kathy, you probably heard me say a million times, but I think it's a beautiful thing uh, in describing market cycles is Sir John Templeton's bull markets are born in pessimism, they grow in skepticism, they mature in optimism, and they die in euphoria. I don't even have to have that written down. It's so ingrained in my head. But I think ultimately that probably defines market cycles more than just about anything else. We we all as analysts or strategists focus on things like valuation and breadth and technical conditions and earnings and the connectivity between the market and the economy. But if you think of some of the major market cycles, some of the big ugly bear markets we've had or the booms on the upside, there was a lot about animal spirits and fear and greed and psychology. So everything that I do, there's always an eye on that psychological aspect of of things. Again, in addition to things like breadth conditions, the participation of the market relative to maybe at times a, a small handful of names. That's certainly been an environment this year of the concentration associated with the, we've been calling it the Super 7, and then Magnificent 7 sort of became the popular descriptor, and I like that one, so I'll, I'll use it. Um, so what what sits behind eras like that? Uh, the, the, the earnings backdrop, the so-called mother's milk of stock prices, but even with earnings, it's not necessarily what you might think in terms of market behavior. Actually, the strongest earnings growth historically has not been met with decent or even um, you know, positive market returns. That's often when the market struggles because of the market as a leading indicator. And that's another key thing that is part of my philosophy and I think important for investors to understand is as it relates to the economy there are leading indicators, there are coincident indicators, there are lagging indicators, truly understanding which fit in which bucket, but also understanding that the stock market is a leading indicator. So how it interacts with those various subsets of, of indicators, uh, that's tied into uh, a line I say all the time, which is when it comes to the relationship between economic data and stock market behavior, more often than not, better or worse matters more than good or bad. So it's it's rate of change, it's direction, it's it's inflection uh, points. So spend a lot of day-to-day time just doing um, uh, that kind of analysis, uh, uh, some top-down work, some bottom-up work, but also reinforcing the, the, the power disciplines of things like diversification and rebalancing, again, financial versus emotional risk tolerance, and importantly, understanding that we don't try to time markets because nobody can do that successfully. Uh, one of the first conversations I, I had early on with uh, with Chuck Schwab, our, our founder, was around just this. And I think it we we had 
sort of a like mind in believing that too many investors believe the key to success is knowing what's going to happen in the market or knowing who to listen to that thinks they know what's going to happen in the market and then positioning accordingly. But the reality is it's actually not what we know about the future that makes us successful investors. It's actually what we do along the way. And that's why in Chuck's memoir that he wrote a few years ago, one of the, the I think, best lines was, if I had learned anything after years in the business, it was how little I could ever know about what the market would do tomorrow. Uh, so that's the the broad philosophy. Um, we'll go into a lot more detail on facets of that as we uh, go through the next several weeks. But I want to turn to you, Kathy, and ask the same question. Um, how do you uh, approach um, the markets and then the Fed? Um, how do you spend your days? Yeah, Lizanne, I don't have any great quotes for you. Um but I, I will say I came up, my first job in this business was in commodity futures trading. So it was very valuable because I didn't know much about markets at the time. didn't know anything about markets at the time. This was some 40-odd years ago. And what I really learned uh, very quickly was the importance of risk management. I saw a lot of very successful traders come and go because they didn't know risk management or didn't practice good risk management. So for me... That's kind of an underlying uh, theme that I look at is, you know, what's the upside downside here? How do I protect myself? What's the best way to approach this to, you know, maximize returns relative to risk? And that, I think that philosophy underlies pretty much everything that we do uh, in the fixed income area. I, I will say the major factors that, that I watch, um, there's three that just uh, pop out as the, the major drivers of interest rates, um, and that's going to be Fed policy. You know, you can't ignore the central bank. Uh, unlike the stock market, you've got one entity uh, in the U.S. bond market that ha plays a huge role in terms of determining what the base lending rate is and how much money is circulating through the markets. And so we have to pay very close attention to what they're telling us, what they're doing, what they're, they're not telling us, and try to parse through all that. And obviously that's challenging, but we can't ignore what the Fed is doing. It's the most you know, significant driver of yields over time. Uh, and then we look at inflation. Uh, inflation's the enemy of the bond market, so we have to pay really close attention to what's happening there and uh, how inflation and inflation expectations are moving because that's a big component of what drives fixed income markets as well. And then economic growth. So there's a strong correlation between you know tr interest rates, treasury yields in particular, but also yields in the corporate bond market and the municipal bond market and uh, how the economy is moving and uh, how fast it's growing, whether it's growing, whether it's shrinking, et cetera. And that's uh, clearly then there are a bunch of indicators that we watch in terms of economic growth. And then when we get just outside of the interest rate um, environment and look at corporate bonds or municipal bonds, we have to focus on the underlying uh, fundamentals such as the ability of the issuer to pay, what the yields are relative to treasuries, which are the benchmark, the effective tax rates, and then just a range of other issues. So we do a lot of uh, number crunching. I, I'm still a diehard Excel spreadsheet user, even though I know that there are more efficient ways to go about it, but haven't really changed that habit of mine to take the data and look at it and try to assess you know, what it's telling us. 
Um, in terms of philosophy, uh, in, in addition to risk management, you know, we try to build off a fair value estimate and extrapolate from there. Not easy to come up with that estimate, um, but we have confidence intervals around it that uh, are important to us. Uh, we include the global outlook, so we also cover global bond markets and what other central banks are doing because that clearly an, is an important driver of what happens in the U.S. markets. We look at how the dollar is acting against major currencies. That's uh, another factor that's important in terms of how the central bank set policy and how the flows in and out of the market uh, turn out. And we just take in as much as useful information as we possibly can, do as much research as we can to verify things that we're seeing, whether they're actually true or not true, or whether they prove to be valuable or not valuable. So, you know, I, I guess the last thing is I'm always looking for what I'm missing. How am I wrong? Um, it's not easy. No one's right all the time. And I think the most valuable lessons that I've learned over the years is when I look at what I got wrong. And um, I have learned a, a great deal of humility uh, in, in this market. But I look at, well, how to get it wrong? Why did I get it wrong? And what can I learn from this going forward? Um, I will say, unlike you, Lizanne, I don't pay a lot of attention to sentiment readings. You know, there's an old saying that uh, bonds are about math and stocks are about stories. I I'm not sure that that's 100% true. But I haven't found sentiment readings to be all that valuable in the bond market. So it's a little bit different, I think, from the stock market in that it does kind of come down to the math at the end of the day. Yeah, I totally agree. Kathy, you had one of the, the funniest lines a few months ago. I think we were uh, both speaking at one of uh, the Schwab conferences and somehow the subject came up of the differences between the bond market and the, the stock market. And I often say, and this gets more to the weeds of things like data, that the bond market lives in the real world and the, <laughs> the equity market lives in the nominal world. But you made a comment about the equity market being like a Labrador puppy. And as someone that a year ago, I had three yellow labs, uh, the uh, oldest, um, Oscar, uh, we had to say goodbye to about a year ago. But at that time, our now two-year-old was, was a puppy. He was one. And when you said that, I immediately thought of my elder statesman, calm Oscar, who just was very observant about what was going on around him as your analogy of the bond market and my maniac, dastardly, one-year-old Wilbur, who anything could distract him, anything could excite him. And uh, so I, I had my own yellow lab versions of the uh, of the bond market and stock market. I'll never forget that uh, comment. Anyway, back to the idea of this podcast. So uh, going forward, it's going to come out on Friday. So that will give us the chance to look back at the week, but also look ahead to the following week and, and even beyond. Now, since this is our first episode, we decided to go a little bigger picture to set a broader stage for what we hope anyway are many interesting conversations in the weeks and months to come. So I'll turn it back to you, Kathy. What is your view on where we are right now, your, your broad outlook for fixed income and Fed policy, especially given just what's been an incredibly unique year and a volatile period for the fixed income uh, markets. Yeah, uh, to say the least, it's been a volatile year and um, one that uh, 
that hasn't been easy to navigate, I don't think, for anyone. Um, from a big picture point of view, you know, I would say that we're in the process of establishing a new normal in terms of interest rates. Um, or maybe returning to an old normal, I think it remains to be seen. You know, we've had this abrupt shift over the past 18 months or so. We went from near zero interest rates to, you know, over 5% for the Fed funds rate. So huge shift in a very short period of time. Um, you know, so I, I think the the bullet points are, you know, the era of zero interest rates has ended. It's even ending in Japan, it looks like, which has been, the, you know, they've been in zero interest rates for 20 some odd years. Um, and we're into a return to positive real interest rates, meaning the nominal yields are above um, inflation rates. And that's not something we've seen for a really long time and has implications for, you know, the economy, for broader markets. We've got now a risk premium uh, in the bond market, something we, again, we haven't had for a long time because we had the Fed and other central banks kind of holding yields down where it was a negative risk premium. Now we actually have a positive risk premium. And that, in, in textbooks, you're supposed to have that, right? You're supposed to have some risk premium in your investments, particularly for longer-term bonds. So we're back to that. Um, and, you know, we have the highest real interest rates in more than 15 years. So a very different environment that we're de dealing with. It's a challenge. And I don't think that anybody, including the Fed and other central banks, really has a good handle on where the new equilibrium interest rate should be. That's what everyone's searching for. I'm not sure that we found it yet because a lot of this volatility, I think, reflects the fact that the the market and the central banks and all of the, the various investors are trying to figure out, well, where is that new kind of neutral that makes sense? Um, and, you know, it's likely to be a pretty bumpy ride um, to a more stable level. But I think the good news is that for investors that can ride out the ups and downs, you know, this is a good time in fixed income. We had a very long stretch when there was no income in fixed income. And, uh, you know, we're, we're encouraged once we get past this volatility, settle down a little bit, figure out, you know, uh, bring buyers back in who have kind of been on strike. Uh, I think that what we'll find is we uh, still these positive real rates for people. So for us as fixed income investors, you know, that's a real opportunity and one we haven't seen for a while. So that's where we are right now. Uh, what about you, Lizanne? You've certainly had your share of volatility uh, lately in the stock market, uh, in the economy. Things haven't turned out quite as, as the rule books would say. Um, you know, what's what's your take right now? Yeah, to say this has been a unique uh, era cycle, whatever you want to call it, is the ultimate understatement. With with so many threads associated with the pandemic weaving into what has made this cycle so different uh, in the economy, in market behavior. And it's, it's you know, it's perplexing for a lot of investors uh, on a day-to-day -day basis, watching action that at times doesn't make a lot of sense, the, the unbelievable cross-currents in terms of economic data, the, the, this constant debate around recession versus soft landing, and if it is truly different this time, and, you know, I forget who it was that, that said that those are dangerous words. It's different this time. I, I think I take the other side of that. I think it's always different this time in both the, the market and the economy. But 
one of the, the themes that we've been emphasizing in describing the economic cycle, but it ties into the market uh, action and cycle and behavior is this idea of a rolling re- recession, which isn't, you know, it's a term that's that's been used more often than not these days by a number of people, but it's it's not as common as the the more simplistic traditional recession or soft landing type terms. But I think it's an apt way to describe this cycle. And none of us want to relive the last three and a half years, and that's not my intention to do that. But going back to the worst part of the pandemic, I think frames the start of this unique cycle, because at the at the time when we were in lockdown mode and the economy was suffering from its uh, COVID recession, when the stimulus kicked in, obviously both on the monetary side of things as well as the fiscal side, the the demand associated with that fueled by stimulus was unbelievably powerful, but very much funneled into the, the call it the good side of the economy, because as we all remember, there was no access to services. And that helped launch the economy out of what was that very short-lived recession, but it was very concentrated in certain segments of the economy. That was also the breeding ground of the inflation problem with which we're still dealing, but very much concentrated in the goods categories associated with inflation statistics. Well, fast forward to the more recent period, you have the offsetting strength on the services side of the economy. Service is a larger employer that has kept or at least help keep the labor market afloat. But many of those areas that had had that initial burst went into their own individual recessions or their own individual hard landings, however uh, you want to describe it. But it's it's big areas in the economy, like manufacturing, housing, housing-related, a lot of the consumer-oriented goods that were actually beneficiaries of the the lockdown uh, phase. And it it's had implications for the stock market, too. The idea that the stock market has just completely whistled past any, you know, air quote, recession risk, perceived or otherwise, suggests that you're forgetting, um, which, you know, that's that's a lovely thing if you can forget things like bear markets. But we did have uh, a bear market last year. If you're, if you're using the just the definition of top to bottom before another 20% rebound, that was from the beginning of January last year until the middle part of October. And you had many of the segments in the market that reflected where that initial strength was. I call them the growth trio of sectors, technology, consumer discretionary, communication services. They they got crushed in last year's bear market. They were the worst three sectors with with your drawdowns uh, from peak to trough in the 35 to 40% range. And I think that that was connected to what was going on at that time, that that weakness that was showing up in areas that had had that initial strength. And, and now we're still in an environment where the labor market has been resilient and probably longer than just about anybody would have expected, particularly given that the Fed is not directly trying to harm the labor market and and, you know, ratchet up the unemployment rate. But they do believe that some weakness or at least less tightness in the labor market is a necessary ingredient to not just bring inflation down to their target, but uh, keep it there in, in a somewhat sustainable way. But it it brings up a, a bigger picture uh, view that we have that um, I'm sure we're going to talk about in a lot more uh, detail. But it, for me, it's the let's you know set the stage with 
a longer term view. The the era that essentially ended with the uh, pandemic is often referred to as the great moderation, depending on what metrics you're looking at or what relationships or who is using the term. It, it covers uh, different periods of time, but I think of it as starting in the mid to late 1990s and, and going through to the pandemic. And it was an era of very restrained inflation, very little inflation volatility, very little economic uh, volatility, the the incredible tailwind of declining interest rates uh, nearly the entire time, including the, the two eras of 0% interest rates and the Fed doing what it did with its uh, balance sheet. And you had longer economic cycles, fewer recessions. I think that that environment is not what we're heading back into. Uh, I think most of the conditions that supported that era of great moderation, um, some of it had to do with globalization. As you know, I know, Kathy, you and I are on the same page with not thinking what we're experiencing now is deglobalization. It's just supply chain diversification and some onshoring and thinking more just in case instead of just in time, but also an acronym that that we've been using to define some of the drivers of the great moderation was gel. Everything was gelling, G-E-L. And that's because the world had cheap and abundant access to goods, energy, and labor. The goods and labor side of that had a lot to do with China coming into the world economic order and really just flooding the world with cheap manufactured uh, goods and, and the labor to produce it. In the case of energy, there was less geopolitical instability. You also had uh, the the booms in the U.S., the, the fracking and shale booms, which led us to become essentially energy independent. And I think what we're seeing now is I think a a return to a different environment, maybe not exactly like what I've been calling the temperamental era, which is the 30 years that preceded the great moderation, call it from the mid-60s to mid-90s. But that was an era that looked a lot different. It had uh, more inflation volatility. That, by the way, is not the same thing as saying inflation is going to stay high in perpetuity, but more inflation volatility driven by more economic volatility, geopolitical concerns, climate change, the list goes on. But um, the one relationship that's interesting to ponder, and this is, I'll, I'll end with this because it, it wraps your world and my world uh, together, is the relationship between the bond market and the stock market. And what a lot of people don't realize is that the 30 years prior to the Great Moderation, essentially the entire time from the mid-60s to the mid-90s, with very few exceptions, bond yields and stock prices were inversely correlated. And that, in simple terms, just to use an example, was because in that era of more inflation volatility, often when yields were rising, it was because inflation was reaccelerating and even if growth was picking up, that was more of a negative backdrop for equities and vice versa when yields were coming down. Well, because inflation was not much of a concern during the great moderation, yields and stocks became positively correlated because in that era, if yields were moving up, it was often reflective of better growth without the attendant concern of, of a major inflation problem, that sort of nirvana for equities. And we're back in negative yield territory, uh, whether it, we, it persists there, it's just something we're all going to have to watch. But it means potentially a different backdrop. And it's not without opportunities for investors. But for a lot of investors who don't have an investing 
um, history back beyond, say, the mid-1990s. It's just a different environment and, and hopefully one we will help everybody navigate. So that is it for us this week. Hopefully we we did a, a decent uh, setup and a backdrop from a bigger picture perspective for some of the conversations we're going to have down the road. And we'll be back with a new episode next week. We also will have a variety of guests on the show, some folks within Schwab, some really interested and exciting external guests, and we're going to be introducing some recurring segments as we go along. Yeah, Lizanne, I'm, I'm really looking forward to what we have planned in the coming weeks. Um, have some very special guests I've wanted to speak with on record uh, on podcasts uh, coming up, so excited to talk to them. Thanks, everybody, for listening to our first episode. Be sure to follow us for free in your favorite podcasting app. And this really helps us. Tell a friend about the show. If you want to keep up with the charts and data we post in real time, you can follow us both on Twitter or X or LinkedIn. I'm Kathy Jones. Uh, you can find me on Twitter at Kathy Jones. That's with a K. And on LinkedIn. And on X, formerly known as Twitter, I'm at Lizanne Saunders. Now, I've had a lot of imposters lately, so make sure you're following the real at Lizanne Saunders. There's no special characters. There's no E on the end of Anne. And Saunders is with an O, S-O-N-D-E-R-S. And I'm also on uh, LinkedIn. For important disclosures, see the show notes or visit schwab.com slash oninvesting, where you can also find the transcript.